0: Hi, I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about goodwill hunting and the psychology of character. I am joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Tricia Arand.
1: Greetings, colleagues.
0: Writer Brian Bittner. Hey. And editor Alex Cayetas. Hello. So why don't we start by talking about how we arrived at choosing goodwill hunting to do for the channel. And so Brian, you wrote this episode, so do you want to sort of take us through how we arrived at choosing goodwill hunting
2: yeah it was a little bit of a um of a just group chat of you know i sort of went through my blu-rays and was like here's a bunch of movies would be fun to write about and you kind of zeroed in on goodwill hunting and we had been talking about what makes a great scene so we were talking about maybe focusing Mm -hmm. on the end scene but the end scene is very simple so it was like but let's talk about building up to that end scene um and uh we also wanted to do a video we could do quickly which i thought i could do with goodwill hunting i i maybe got a little um too self-confident after Shaun of the Dead. I was like, oh, now I can write one that like Michael likes, and then it just turns into roughly what the video is. Nope. No. <laughs> the great um, Michael's right. a tough customer. <laughs> um, but you know, we'll talk about the process then. But I think it very quickly became a conversation about uh, doing more of a character study and looking at Will and, and what breaks him down. And I've never taken a single class on psychology or anything like that but I did go to school for acting and I feel like you learn mm-hmm. very quickly like mm-hmm. any actor worth their salt has to be kind of an amateur psychologist and you have to go what you know every single line I'm saying why would this character be saying that why you know even if a director's like I need you to walk on that from stage left to stage right and you're like I don't feel like <laughs> doing it but okay why would this character choose to do that at that moment you know yeah. it's a lot of very specific stuff and and I really really loved doing that when I was from an acting perspective um, so I think from a screenwriting perspective, either writing or analyzing a screenplay, it's very similar. It's it's let's peel apart the layers of this character and why would that character do that at that moment? That's not what I expected him to do. Oh, but it's because mm-hmm. the character is going through this. So that was sort of the our starting point for it.
0: Yeah. And I feel like one of the things that early in the conversations, Tricia, you pointed out was just how mm-hmm. goodwill hunting is a great example for this because the psychology right. aspect is right on the surface.
1: Yeah. It's part of the text. It's actually the A plot of this movie. And so breaking into that, because I really feel like not enough is said about psychology uh, in terms of screenwriting, you know, like you should be picking up a few of these books or take one class at least or a couple classes. An acting class is a great way to start too Um, because, you know, we are all writing about humans, the human condition, all of this, all these like sort of heavy themes and when a kid, when a screenwriter doesn't know anything about psychology, it's one of the most obvious things, <laughs> like on the page, where you're just like, "Oh no, this isn't what people are. <laughs> this isn't what they do," and it, it becomes like, you know, that, and then that's where we get like, an actor can't play it if it isn't motivated on the page, right? And so I think, especially with this movie, because it is part of the A plot, but then also knowing Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, actors who are had, knowing as they're writing that they're going to play these characters mm-hmm. every single thing they were like we got to motivate it it has to be about that and that's this movie is perfect because how often do you get to read a screenplay by see a screenplay by the actor who's playing the character i think like rocky is maybe one other example yeah. but mm-hmm. there aren't that many of them out there
0: yeah and i think one of the things that i took away from this process is I think I, you know, know that psychology is important in writing, but I think it's not something that's talked about enough. And Yeah, and totally. I think being able to look at this film and pick out like specific things like the defense mechanisms, like I think that was beneficial for me to, to see how psychology can directly translate to character behavior mm-hmm. and like how you mm-hmm. can take these kind of amorphous screenwriting ideas and turn them into something that you see on the page. Um, so that was a fun thing to focus on.
3: I mean, I think it's interesting because a lot of the things you've covered in your other videos are psychology. You know, it's, it's the Mm -hmm. idea of the weakness. What's the flaw? What's Mm -hmm. the, you know, all the, all the modern tools of, of screenplay writing are basically psychological in nature. It's about somebody who has basically an undealt with trauma from their past and the events of the story are forcing them to deal with that trauma and kind of transcend it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, Google it, hunting is just an example of a movie where it's literally on the surface that's what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. But every movie is that. If it's, if it's a well-done character story. Absolutely. Yeah. That's. Yeah. I mean,
1: that's what they say. It's like when you, you look at any sort of like story structure it starts somebody who is broken right mm-hmm. and then and we always relate to that whatever that thing is that's broken in their life and and then the story t- takes them to a place where they can heal and we don't often put that in the context of therapy at least at least not not in a screenplay you know because screenplays two people therapies two people sitting and talking to each other a lot of us do that in our real lives but we're less interested in watching it and i think the thing that makes goodwill hunting work is that they have that as the a plot therapy where he's is working through trauma he's broken in this way but then there are all of these other events in his life that are creating this perfect storm forcing him to actually engage with therapy right. when he really doesn't want to right and the court order at the beginning is really what kicks that off
0: yeah i kind of compare it to Inside Out in some ways, because I think Inside Out was another, it's another good example of kind of story structure laid bare in the actual, like, A-plot of the film. Because yeah. it's literally, Joy has to learn to accept sadness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, the character names are their weaknesses. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. it's yeah. all right there. Um, and so I think that, that was another example for me where you really see the the psychological transformation that has to happen uh, and you can track it very easily. And I think that's, yeah, I'm glad that we're diving into that more because I think that mm-hmm. helps me. One of my pet peeves with so many of these like screenwriting books is that it's just kind of like generically saying this needs mm-hmm. to happen for this, like this here and that there, but not really talking about why. Like, why is it, why are we resonating with those markers, those structural choices, et cetera. Yeah. Right, and
2: and that's sort of where, um you know, in this video, we also talk about, Okay, how do you give a character a catharsis, but also how do you give a, an audience a catharsis? And it's one thing I love about John York's book, uh, Into the Woods, which if you follow the channel, you may have heard reference <laughs> once <laughs> or um, twice, is that, is that he will, he, he never throws anybody under the bus, but he'll say, you know, well, in screenplay, Sid Field says to do this, but he doesn't say why.
4: Mm-hmm. And he'll really
2: go into here's why an audience, you know, he, he talks about um, uh, synthesis, uh, Wait, thesis antithesis synthesis Synthesis, you know so it's like i went to the store they didn't have bread i had to go to a different store like normal day problem solution that Mm -hmm. kind of thing and that's kind of what every single story is um but he talks about how that's how our brains are wired and you know he goes in a lot of like here's here's how people are and this is why characters behave a certain way but it's also why audiences react Mm -hmm. a certain way you know so really getting into that like not just do your thing on page 26. Cause that's what this book says, but it's really just like, here's how people are, you know?
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I
1: remember reading about this, uh, because so I went to a Christian college and studied screenwriting and cinema. Uh, and you know, they very much tie like storytelling to a spiritual journey, which is true, but it's also, you know, it's psychological. It's, it's the human journey. Um, and they talk about Uh, There's actually a branch. Someone mentioned this, I think, in the comments on the video. But there's a branch of therapy, essentially, that's called narrative therapy. And it's basically the idea that we are all playing a character in our own lives. And so, you know, so if you think of storytelling as like assigning meaning to events, we just pull certain events out of the narrative of our lifetime, assign meaning to them and say, okay, this is the story of the character that I play or the way that I see myself. And so the idea of narrative therapy is like, maybe if we all just looked in our past and picked different events and say, no, that's the meaningful event, right? Like, instead of this traumatic thing that happened, actually the meaningful event was this beautiful thing that happened afterward. Um, and it assigned, guys, podcasting is hard. I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm bumping. I bumped everything. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna Every put,
2: background sound you hear is Trisha bumping. I'm
1: going to put my arms down by my sides. <laughs> and I'm going to stand like the tin man and, and podcast this way. Um, but yeah, the idea that if we selected other other examples out of our lives and said, no, those are the things that those are the, that's the core story of the person mm-hmm. that I am. You know, the idea that we could be less troubled or that we could form a different view of ourselves and step out, put on a different story in the morning yeah. and step out into the world as somebody that isn't plagued by the same sorts of things because it is – it's all about that narrative that we live into, right?
2: We have those stories we tell ourselves. Well, exactly. because my parents got divorced when I was seven, that's yeah. why I'm so screwed up. It's like, no, you're screwed up because you choose to be, not because like something happened once or whatever, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, when well, that's the, – the journey of therapy is making – make like facing those things because – and understanding why Why do you tell yourself that oh, terrible right. thing over and over? Why do you feel like you need to dwell in it? Why right. do you feel like it defines you? Um, and then eventually, you know, hopefully making peace with some of that stuff. And then hopefully being able to move on from some of that stuff. Because we all have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like,
3: it's right. not yeah. quite
1: Will Hunting level. <laughs> but it's like, we have it.
3: Well, I think it's where, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, spiritual in addition to psychological. Yeah. I think that's where, you know, meditation or awareness practices also come into For play. Sure. because you do start to realize literally my beliefs about myself are just a story like you know moment to mm-hmm. moment i can be whatever i want actually but i'm so attached to the story of what i am and what i do and how i react that's what i just have to keep doing cuz it's, it's the story of my life yeah um but it's, it's interesting to to think about how uh michael you were you had this new kind of dan harmon kind of model of like yeah. the hero's journey you were getting pretty into about like a kind of a circular path Mm -hmm. And it was I I read the blog post and it was interesting to think about how pretty much everything in life, you know, before I make a positive change for myself, I have to like, go really far down in the other direction. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm like, treating my body, body badly, you know, overeating or drinking too much or whatever. I usually have to do that like a lot. Right. And then I'm like, maybe I should stop drinking so much. Or maybe I should, you know, eat healthier. And then i make the change. But somehow it always takes going down to the like pit, The know? rock bottom. It, you, you always have, even if it's a small pit, you always have to hit that rock bottom yeah. before you make that change. And it's kind of a frustrating reality of human existence. Yeah. But yeah. story structure kind of reflects that. It's so what Fight Club's all about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I feel like I, I
0: recently had that with video games as my addiction. Like oh, that's the thing that yeah, will yeah. plague my productivity. And so I... I I feel like every year I do this circle. I do this journey. And I this time I was kind of trying to be self-aware about it and realized I was very much like the first half of act two. Like that idea where the the character thinks they're like working on their thing, but yeah. they're like not quite doing it right. Like they're aware of the problem, but they're trying to fix it in a way that's not going to really fix it. Mm-hmm. I've been aware that like I can get to the point where I acknowledge I'm playing too many video games. And then I come up with a lot of ways to fix it quote unquote Mm -hmm. "Mm -hmm." that is actually just as unproductive uh as before so i'm like i'm aware of the problem and i'm trying to fix it but i'm actually just procrastinating more by doing different things
2: wait side note i i'm having a flashback to the first time we all hung out what what
1: no, go ahead. What? It I'm was scared. Some, I'm just a little scared. Something,
2: something about someone was talking about how you used to like narrate your life in screenplay format or something. What was this? <laughs> oh yeah, Michael did that. It was like it was like a TV show. It was like this is a season finale. Time. Oh yeah. Like <laughs> right.
3: Like the events that are happening right now are clearly a season finale. Right. And this is a season premiere. Wow. Yeah. Right. Oh, it was
0: essentially like there was a god, but god were the writers, and uh-huh. so sure, like, sure. when something crazy was going on, it was like oh my god, the writers are. Insane. Oh right. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. This is such a twist. twist. You're like
2: Daffy Duck getting in a fight with the animators, and suddenly (laughs) it's like the screwball flag on your tail. Yeah. Oh
1: boy. Well, one thing I really like about Goodwill Hunting is that the the psychology subtext doesn't play this like really overused card or not subtext, the the plot doesn't play this overused card where the psychologist is just like, I'm going to teach you. I know everything. I'm, you know, Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. omnipotent being, whatever. It's Sean is so human. Like he's just as human. He's just as broken as Will. And I think that's a huge part of the catharsis because we don't like to be taught things. Like Will can't be taught what's wrong with him. Mm -hmm. He has to experience it and Mm -hmm. it has to be, you know, born out of this connection of, like, oh, no, you've walked this road. Yeah. Um, That, I think, is the only, like, in the movie, it's only believable because we understand what Sean has been through. Like, right. all the emphasis on all of his loss and mm-hmm. all of that, you know, he's from the same place as Will, but then he, like, has lived so much longer and actually lost a lot more, it feels like. And you know he's still engaging. He's engaging with his problems. He's willing to be vulnerable. He's willing to do all of this stuff, and it earns that catharsis in yeah. a way that I think is super important. Um, because yeah, we just yeah the if if it were just, it wouldn't work any other way.
3: Right. Well, because there's a lot of therapist characters like in TV shows and stuff where they're kind of that distant, cold, like- yeah authority figure and robin williams in this movie oh my god like yes. i just yeah my heart was just like breaking the entire mm-hmm. time i was re-watching it i was like no robin williams you're <laughs> so beautiful and perfect in this movie <laughs> yeah. and you're bearing yeah. your soul and you're such a wonderful human being and it made me
2: sad and happy and yeah, all these yeah. emotions mm-hmm. yeah yeah but yeah it's it's something i thought about when writing and i just knew it wasn't going to fit in our video that like will does affect sean also and yeah. sean at the yes. end like he realizes he's been doing the exact same thing and he makes mm-hmm. the choice to go put his cards back on the table as he says you know i really appreciated that watching it again i yeah, uh, think yeah. i kind of went over my head
3: when i first saw it and just realizing how it really is a dual yeah. journey for both of them
2: and i also love uh sean and professor lambo's relationship Me too. Yeah. it's just this like short little three scene kind of kind of b it's story fascinating. but it's just it's really kind of lovely yeah
1: that line where um you know you realize that Lambeau didn't make it to the funeral, yeah, and 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 then Sean goes, "No, I got your card. it was nice, yeah, <laughs> the line is the line is perfect, but but William delivers it perfectly, mm-hmm. where it's like, how could anything ever make up for you not coming to the funeral? Obviously, nothing ever can. um and so there's sort of that sarcasm underneath where you're like, "Oh no, I got your card. It right. was nice, But he doesn't deliver it meanly. He actually delivers it kindly. It's, it's mm-hmm. a huge understatement. Right. And right. obviously snide a little bit. But he tries to deliver it kindly. And almost even when you see Robin Williams' performance, he... He almost switches like in the middle of the line. Like yeah. he mm-hmm. starts off delivering it sarcastically. He realizes it's how it's sounding, as you know, as we mm-hmm. all do sometimes, where it's like, oh, this is coming out way worse than I mean it actually. Or it's coming out downright mean. And then at the at the very end, or the expression on his face, like, no, it was it was nice. Like, oh, he's he's trying. Yeah. But he's obviously been through hell. You there, know?
2: There's so much that the actors brought a, a, oh, and the yeah. director brought to the to the movie. You know, even like like uh Stellan Skarsgård. There was no line about him like hitting on the college students or anything. He just decided that's what it was. So that's why like it's every, perfect. Every, yeah. every beginning of every scene, it's just him being, like, time. being like, well, you know, <laughs> geometry is kind of like a. It's like makes you feel like a god or whatever he's saying. Like it's like magic. <laughs> um, and also his uh his outfit. It was his idea to be the like, scarves, like, well, yeah. He's like so he's so like many i mean, This character is a rock star. At MIT, but, no, but nowhere else. So the fact that he wears these like, you know, whatever, like patent leather shoes and these scarves, and he's walking around like
4: like he's uh, a rock star. Yeah,
2: exactly. But like then he goes to a bar and they're like, you know, you ever hear of Gerald Lambeau? <laughs> <laughs> that, right. that whole thing. Well, and it's interesting because that's kind of another
0: form of defense mechanism. Or mm. like trying exactly. to portray yourself the right. way you want people to think of you, which really just betrays your raging insecurities about all these things. And I think that's what makes Lambeau so fascinating is to mm-hmm. see that. His soul kind of gets bared over time, also, and like mm-hmm. his defense mechanisms are stripped away
2: there's There's a great um thing on the commentary where one of the first um either cuts of the movie or versions of the script the studio said like well he just kind of feels like he's like a uh, twisting his mustache like he's like the guy mm-hmm. like trying to mm. and, and so then they liked that and they wanted to make sure that they that the character wasn't like that because you feel like lambo does genuinely feel about uh, care about will yeah. Yeah, he right. just has a different value system so they actually wrote the line in where he's at the bar with sean where he's like look i'm not twisting my mustache i am <laughs> yeah, 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 you know. yeah. um just like there's a casey affleck line where he says he says like uh, you know keep keep effing with me see what happens but then when they edit it for tv it, it said uh, keep antagonizing me, see what happens they're like, they're <laughs> like we love that line so much we just changed it to that line yeah (laughs) Yeah. that's funny
1: well in that moment where you because we pick up all of that from Lambeau, right like Mm -hmm. we've all known somebody like that that is like up on their high horse a little bit about you know he he acts like modest about his field's Medal, whatever but like he brings it up right you know yeah like Mm -hmm. and then when and then when uh sean brings it up He's like, stop throwing that in my face. He's like, no, you just said it, though. <laughs> yeah. Like, you just brought up your Fields medal. Uh, but that moment where he's like, I wish I didn't know people like you existed, you know? And where we start to see his insecurities, how yeah. he really, Will has really taken him apart because mm-hmm. he has worked his entire life toward being in the position that he is in and he's at the top of his field and he can't compete, you know? Yeah. Um and like, that, I mean, I don't know any prodigies, but I feel like I would hate them. Just like, <laughs> it would feel, it would just Cause feel they're, not they're not trying, they're not trying. They're just like, oh, yeah. I, I just do
3: it and whatever. It's kind yeah. of infuriating, yeah.
1: Well, it's sort of the opposite of the... Um, You've done a video about, like, the obsessed artist.
3: Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm.
1: opposite of that. It's like you have somebody who has the all The casual of, genius. The casual
3: <laughs> genius.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I hate the casual genius. It's like stop sitting in your corner and everything comes easy to you. All right. You know, and even Minnie Driver's character is wrestling. You know, Skylar's wrestling with that where it's like, no, I have to study this. And mm-hmm. I'm actually really smart. Um, You know, that these outliers that we we compare ourselves against yeah um which isn't fair to them or to us right right Right. because they're so anomalous
2: also mini driver detour i was (laughs) literally just about to get in that car (laughs) yeah yeah
4: she's
0: amazing in this like i'm I'm blown away every time because I think I forget almost that like she's such a big part of the film but kind of the things that stick with me are these other big moments mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. I go back and I watch and there's just so much nuance and the chemistry is there and it feels like real but she's also like hitting all the beats of the script like I'm just blown away every time by how real and how much of a connection there is and yeah. it's she's G- amazing. Gus
2: Van on the commentary he's like I don't know how she did it but before every sheen- scene she would just take this deep breath and then the scene would come spilling out of her and it was like she no. was like she like did this thing where she just changed and then it happens he's like you know it's he's a filmmaker he's directed a lot yeah. of it, and he was just like it was it blew me away
1: that's awesome i um i remember I, I i probably watched this movie for the first time when i was in college i definitely didn't see it in theaters or in 97 or anything mm-hmm. like that yeah. um because i would have been very young, uh, or too young for it, probably 11. That's <laughs> too young yeah, for good London, young for right? God. Yes, yeah. for sure. Um, but I think I saw it when I was in college, and I remember feeling like so I, I wasn't around people who like drank or swore or anything. Again, I went to a Christian college. <laughs> and, um, and so there are, you know, there's all these F words and there's all this like profanity and blah, blah in the movie. And I remember thinking when I saw the scene where he tells her he doesn't love her um like looks her dead in the eyes and just lies lies to her because he's scared um I just remember thinking like that's the most profane thing in this movie right Mm. that's Mm. that's Mm. like the part that makes me like I don't care about the rest of it like and it was this huge revelation moment for me where I was like you know, I can't, I know all these people that get tied up in content, content, like there's, you can't have a sex scene in a movie or I'm offended by this word or that word or whatever. And I'm like, that's, it's not about the content, um, or like the surface content. It's about the story and what, what this movie says deeply about life is something beautiful and important and profanity isn't what we think it is. Or I don't know. I just remember feeling that at the time it was so resonant. Um, yeah. (laughs) How wonderful! What a moving, yeah. what because, a moving moment!
0: Yeah, there's so much meaning behind yeah. it, and they throw the F word around a so bunch. There's no meaning in the F word. And I feel like so, like yeah, right, yeah. I think that that is one of the one of the moments for me also that's so powerful. Is like you, it just hurts so much because it's just tragic on every level. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just very much that moment of like why can't you see so you love each other yeah. like why can't you just be okay yeah
2: I, I remember this is like a little off topic but um first time i saw first or second time i saw dark knight mm. i was like the pg-13 rated dark knight i was like this is one of the most upsetting movies i've seen yeah. in a while because <laughs> because it's just it's like so hopeless for you know and like truly to have this antagonist who's like no just some people are just terrible people they don't need a reason and that kind of thing right. and i was like you can you can edit out like it's not about oh there's guns or there's blood or there's mm-hmm. language or whatever it's like no just like the theme sometimes or the or the sort of yeah. story you're, you're telling can be so much more upsetting mm-hmm. than than any of those things the rating system is pretty goofy uh-huh. have, you, have you guys seen the documentary from a while
3: back that was like this film is not rated they interviewed directors in it and Darren Aronofsky was pointing out he was like I think James Bond movies and such where people have, like, these weird bloodless deaths, but, like, just mass death all around him, but Mm -hmm. it's just, like, all, like, sanitized, should be, like, a higher rating, like, rated R versus, like, a war movie that's, like, this is what actual life looks like when people Mm -hmm. die. Like, it's, like, maybe it's, like, more damaging to the human brain to, like, have this weird desensitized version of death. Anyway, so it's, like, yeah, we have this idea of, like, certain things are, like, R-rated things, but it's so arbitrary. It's not really maybe there's more damaging things to the human psyche than the F word, you know? (laughs) Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like it's one of those weird things where as an
0: organization, you have a job and everyone agrees, like this is an important job. Like some, some content shouldn't be given freely to children. Sure. So like, we can agree that that's, you know, a goal we want, but then their job is to figure out the, like what that actually translates to Mm -hmm. and what that means. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of an impossible job. So I, try to like you know i understand the struggle of mm-hmm. but then it becomes arbitrary where it's like oh well, you get one yeah. f word but two two is an arbitrary,
2: well, right yeah. it and it can't be used as a verb it can only be used as an expletive yeah. right part of the documentary too
3: is like the people who are on like the board the MPAA, are like really random like it's like why yeah. are these the people that like maybe decide a movies fate sometimes because it it goes into the R category as opposed to PG thirteen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
1: it ends up becoming a huge deal, right? The yeah. the rating system. I try to I volunteer with kids a lot. Um and like middle school age kids who are sort of in the middle where they're grappling with like what they wanna what they wanna see, what they what they're still afraid of, <laughs> uh, what they're not as afraid of, what they're interested in, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I I try to remind them, I'm like, you know it really is just information for you about what might be in this, what is in this movie. Right. So it's like, it's information for you. It's information for your parents. um, And you can, you can decide before you see it, if you want to see it. I mean, I hate horror movies. So even if a horror movie is rated PG 13, I, I know based on what I can assume is in it, that I'm not going to want to see it just because I know who I am. And so I think that as we all, you know, get older and like figure that stuff out, I mean, some of it is super arbitrary, though,
2: and it's why it's what I like that we live in a society where it's not like the best pictures, the the movies that get recognized are not the safe movies all the time. Like you know, yeah. seeing a Good Will Hunting or even like an Aaron Brockovich or something like that, where you're like, oh no, this isn't like your this isn't your. Your mom's Julia Roberts movie or, you know, sure. like, or your or your dad's Robin Williams movie, you know. It's it's like something like Good Will Hunting. It's like, no, these are who these characters are. It would be doing, yeah. be doing the character and the city and all the story <laughs> yeah. a disservice to totally. be like, oh, they don't talk like this.
1: Well, and I remember because Titanic – one you know, sw- that was the year that Titanic swept everything, um, and I remember the debate over Titanic though because there's like topless, you know, like there's Kate Winslet in it, one nipple, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, no, and, and it was a huge yeah. deal, like because it was a PG thirteen movie and parents were up in arms about. Can we have this? Can we have, Can we have a nipple?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Can in, we see a nipple
1: <laughs> in a historical epic? Yeah, <laughs> about a historical event in which you know
2: hundreds, they all of,
1: hundreds of women and children and people die. Like, <laughs> yeah, right, the offensive thing, right,
3: mass death, right, <laughs> but freezing like to death and drowning yeah. in the North
1: Atlantic. But we're really worried about this sketching scene, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: this is completely off topic but there i go, watched go. a video recently about the titanic and like kind of picking apart the historical inaccuracies of the titanic mm-hmm. and so i feel like one day we'll just have to do titanic because i want to talk i about really them. want us to do oh, titanic can we, yeah. Can yeah. we please like, do Titanic? Yes. they got a lot of things really right but they also chose to admit huge other things that are oh. like like while the ship was sinking the california ship was right nearby and could have come and saved them and like yeah after- anyway So
2: that's a tangent that will be a tease. But because it was California, they were just like, you know what? Like, (laughs) We're kind of doing our own thing right now. We're We're getting getting high. We're getting high. We're having brunch. Podcasting.
3: But on the topic of the ratings thing, I feel Mm -hmm. like what's interesting right now is it feels less relevant than ever because so much content is streaming on HBO, Netflix, and that's just like a free-for-all. Yeah, exactly. I love it. It's just like I don't even – think about it anymore it's just like everything's kind of (laughs) adults so it works for me yeah it's probably hard if you have kids yeah that's why they have the kids the kids section on netflix yeah
1: no Um, it is interesting i mean and i think that that's part of an ongoing conversation that all of us in the entertainment industry are having because you know the streaming services have changed everything so dramatically and content like how we consume content is one of those things um where it's just like okay well if a kid has netflix though now he can see literally anything very easily
3: they have like Gaspar knows like love on there yeah, so they... Like... <laughs> oh they do yeah, they got lots of lots of explicit stuff uh. they,
1: they surely do and it, it's just yeah <laughs> we'll have to see i i assume well i don't know it'll be interesting to see if they do try to regulate it a little more intensely or um
3: kids also have the internet so maybe it's just Well, all... i mean why even try it? it's
1: guys there's no saving kids anymore <laughs> yeah. they know everything <laughs> they know it all man
2: they're growing up fast well, oh, seriously. Speaking of Goodwill hunting, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah
3: podcast about Goodwill hunting.
0: Well, one of the things, because in recent uh, conversations about movies we mm-hmm. should talk about, The Matrix was brought up yeah. as a potential movie. And then we kind of had a mini conversation about violence in films and yeah. how, you know, thinking back to uh, The Matrix, it kind of makes me uncomfortable to think of how much glorification of guns and violence there was Mm -hmm. and like as a kid it was awesome but like (laughs) as an adult but kind of rather than talking about the matrix what i think is interesting and i think i can tie this back to goodwill hunting eventually is i feel like the big block blockbuster films that i've seen of late uh have kind of Done like a fantasy magic wand over violence, like all the Marvel films, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. right there's like thousands of people die, but it's all kind of in a fantasy magical way, Mm -hmm. okay. And so, I've just kind of noticed that the big blockbuster films have shied away from realistic violence, but it's interesting that it's not, you know the number of people dying and the death toll, there's still violence. It's, it's like just... always
3: like genocidal levels. It's like this right. entire city yeah. is right. going to like have like millions of people die, but it's all like cartoon right dying. Yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> well, there
3: or, are... you
2: know, spoiler, 4 billion people just turning to ash. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sorry,
1: sorry, everybody. But if you <laughs> haven't seen Infinity War yeah, yet, I really right. don't know what you're doing listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, it is interesting because it's, the moments where I think the Marvel and other like superhero and these comic book kind of movies, I think the moments where they succeed the most are when they sort of bring that home and bring it down and be like, oh, no, he died in that crazy disaster. Right. Um, it's at the beginning of uh which avengers movie where tony stark is confronted about somebody who died in like one of the huge disasters in the previous movie why are you guys i think age of
3: ultron i think it's Yeah, okay, they like review all the different places they've like blown up cities yeah. Right, right yeah
1: where they've <laughs> taken down whole city blocks and stuff yeah no but i think it is it's in the at the beginning of that movie that moment where there's just a grieving mother there yeah that was like my son was doing this he was doing that and he's dead now it reminded me of that scene in jaws where it's just like. Like you you know we often the heroes of our movies feel like they're doing a bigger job and they're all like beyond us and they have to hold all of these lives or make all of these decisions um and then when they're confronted with the actual death toll yeah. or the actual moment just a- um,
2: alex kintner's mom alex Kit- that's what i'm saying yeah, it's, it's Alex the Kintner's face. mom yeah. yeah it's like yeah. you knew
1: you knew mm-hmm. you know um that's where I feel like those movies really succeed and not so much in the like and all the we destroyed this building, we wrecked that car like
0: yeah well so and, and to bring it back to goodwill yeah uh, <laughs> you're I doing feel it like one of the the thing that I like about it and why I also compare it to inside out uh is that the climax, you know, isn't an external destruction mm. of a thing like the the climax, the victory is an act of forgiveness yeah. and acceptance. And I feel like that's a very rare thing in the stories that we tell. And I Absolutely. think that's why when we encounter it, like in Inside Out or
2: Goodwill Hunting
0: or whatever other films.
2: Or No Country for Old Men, where this the climax is not so much about getting the bad guy. It's about accepting the bad
0: guy. Making peace. Right. yeah And I feel like those, those land, for me anyway, those land the hardest because... They're so rarely told, but I feel like they're so important. It's that, you know, the bittersweet. Like, I feel like that's, these are actually important psychological life lessons. Uh, And I feel like it, it seems like maybe it's a harder thing or it strikes people as harder to tell those stories because it's easier to have an external antagonist that you can... Throw off the building or try to save in the last minute, but then mm-hmm. he falls anyway. So the protagonist didn't kill him, but he's still right. died. Right, uh, And that's one of the things that <laughs> I shoot the
2: rafter above his head instead of shooting him. Right, <laughs> indirect murder. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh,
0: and so I think that's that's another reason I'm I'm glad we chose Goodwill Hunting to highlight because I think that's and and why I want to talk about the psychology of storytelling more because I think telling stories, you know, if stories really are life lessons about how to live, I think that you know they are really powerful. And I think we've gotten really good at telling stories in film, but I want people to focus on what are those lessons? Like, are we just reinforcing the same, you know, general like ideas about how to live? Or are we actually looking at, well, now it's 2018. We know like therapeutic releases, catharsis, like forgiveness. These are important things. Mm -hmm. Can we tell more stories that incorporate those as the themes and lessons? Right.
1: Yeah. And we so rarely get to like, I feel like an obvious or like a bad version of this movie would have Will going and like confronting that person who abused him when he was a kid, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, that Mm -hmm. isn't how life is. That isn't how it works. And we all are capable of having an arc and going on a journey without needing necessarily to – to directly face what, it, you know, he does face it directly in therapy, but he faces it within himself. Um, he doesn't have to like go punch that guy out. That's not what it's about for him, is like finding a way forward that doesn't include actually, you know, getting into a fist fight, which obviously is one of his defense mechanisms <laughs> that we've mm-hmm. seen before.
2: Right. So it's, Yeah, it's a telling moment about Will. He's like, I just want to go beat this guy up. Like, yeah. he didn't do anything, you know? <laughs> He's just like, I didn't like that guy a million years ago. Let's go get in a fight. Yeah, I knew that kid in it was kindergarten. Like kindergarten, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a really long time ago. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now let's go punch him.
2: Yeah. And I like that, yeah, that's
0: that's used as an example of the old Will, the bad way of life right. that he needs to overcome.
2: And it's something um, with Trisha, what you were saying earlier, talking about uh, Will's sort of... I think he's self-aware in a way where, like, logically, he understands what he's going through. At the, at the end, with uh, when Sean has his file, he's like, "Oh, what um, abandonment disorder and that kind of thing." It's like, it's yeah. like he yeah. understands logically. I really like that through. about his character, right? Like, but I, he has I, to understand it on an emotional yeah. level. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sorry. You're gonna say something? Else? No, that, that's basically it. Just, okay. I, I, it's nice when a when a character is
3: like it's like caught up with the audience like yeah it makes me admire and like almost root for that character more when it's like oh they're they're that smart they actually even know what their problem is but like us like all humans just knowing it isn't enough well that's that
1: whole scene on the park bench too where they're talking where he's Mm -hmm. like no you could quote me this and you could quote me that you've read it you've read it but you don't actually know it right um and so where he at the end he's like oh so will has detachment or whatever he has it's like Of course he knows. He knows he has that. Right. He's read
2: these books. Like, you understand. Um, and the other thing is, uh, John York talks about what's called the rubber ducky moment, which <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, uh, David yeah. Mamet calls the one, I, one time I had a kitten or when I was young, I had a kitten moment, sure, sure. which is that moment where like the entire action slows down and the character tells you finally why they're going what they're going through. Uh-huh. And it's always mm-hmm. it's always weird writing like mm-hmm. it's even weirder when like a character will respond with like some like anecdote that's not even about their own life. It'd be like, be like, hey, you know, how come you didn't come to the party last night? Do you ever hear the story about the three fishermen? Like what? Like <laughs> why? Why are we going off in this like weird like riddle? You know? I feel like when people uh, tell like long stories in
3: movies, it's like very rarely that it works for me. Where it's right. like, all right, I'm going to tell you this long, slow story now. That kind of like. Is like hiding what it's actually about until I reveal it at the end. I'm like nobody talks like that. Right. Nobody like let me, and, and that's why let me take it down a notch and tell you a story. Although <laughs> the
1: scene where Sean talks about when he met his wife and he they like talk about that whole game and they're like getting into like oh my god in the game and he hit the homer yeah. and body blood. And he's like no i wasn't there. Like that is sort of that moment, yeah, but it but works. It's done so well. well. But, done but that's well. but yeah. where yeah.
2: it works there is um, uh, well going back to the rubber ducky moment real quick. It's just it's nice and good Goodwill Hunting that it. That's not how you find out about his past. You find out in like like peppered throughout. Mm -hmm. But with that moment, with both of Sean's monologues, it's very much him premeditating something that he wants to communicate to Will. Exactly. He wants Will to ask him that question. What you know, Mm -hmm. where you weren't there and that kind of thing. It's it's Sean telling that for a purpose rather than just being like, now I'm going to tell you about my entire life, even though I spent the last two hours not telling you about my entire life. You know.
1: Yeah, um, and I think that like. Going back to sort of the writing process of it, it's super fascinating to me that the psychology piece was not the piece that they were originally focusing on. You know, like the original screenplay was about was sort of this thriller, like espionage kind of thing where Will was super smart and the NSA was like after him, trying to recruit him. And they oh, were interesting. He and know. his no, friends. I didn't, were, I didn't know this. Yeah, yeah, he and his friends were like running around Boston, dodging the NSA. Like it was kind of this weird thriller, and um. I feel like that it makes
0: was... 100% more sense to have come from Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Point. Now yeah. that we know them a little better. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> but yeah. And then so then, you know, I think it was in development. I, I think they were at Castle Rock at the time. They were like, no, you have two different movies here. You got to pick. But the only, they say, according to the mythos of the writing of Goodwill Hunting, of which there <laughs> is a lot yeah. written mm-hmm. and you can read it, but it, they say that like the only scene that survived from the, that original screenplay is the scene where Will meets Sean for the first time. Mm -hmm. And they realized that there was something in that, in the meaning of these two characters, that that's where the true story sort of was. Um, And, Thank goodness, because what a boring movie that would have well, been. Well,
2: that, that brings up a fun thing, which is that uh, when they did do the script, Michael Mann was one of the people who they oh, were looking wow. at to do it. And Michael Mann wanted to make a Michael Mann movie. Oh, right. and, and of course, the fun thing was he was like, yeah, but I don't want those two kids in it. And they're like, well, let's do like a screen test. So Michael, there's like somewhere in a vault, there's footage of Michael Mann doing a screen test with Ben and Matt. And then afterwards, he's like, yeah, I still don't want those kids in the movie. So man. I just, I just picture, like, I just picture this trailer. You know, one man from the wrong side of town <laughs> with a special gift, <laughs> <laughs> with uh, you know, Mark Wahlberg as Will Hunting. How do you like them apples? <laughs> well, <it's>, Al Pacino <laughs> as Sean. It's not your fault, you know, just like a completely <laughs> different movie. Al Pacino as Sean. I love it. Thank goodness. Well, you know, I think just, the- just screaming it's not your fault like yeah. the same tone yeah yeah, yeah yeah Al Pacino style <laughs> he
1: like breaks a glass against the wall it's not your
3: fault I love these stories because it it it's important to hear that because I think people think oh like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon just sat down and wrote this wrote this amazing movie and it just happened and they just get the because yeah. like so much of the writing process is like you might write an entire movie and then one scene is the one thing that is actually like the heart, and you have to start from scratch and write a whole movie around that scene. Yeah, And people, I think, need to know that because right. it, you know, when you go into writing a screenplay, I mean, at least for me, it was always just like, well, I'll just figure out the story, I'll do a yeah, basic outline, I'll just write it, and it'll be done. And it's so not that. It's a Dope. much longer journey, and you just have to be it's accepted and that's just what it is you know that's and you can't discover what the best version of this thing is until you've gone down wrong paths right and i yeah ha- i hate it and i wish that wasn't
2: the way <laughs> yeah. it was but you have to just accept it as that's that's what it is yeah. well the, the, the writing process in this movie is really interesting uh first they sort again, of again
1: according to legend
2: well according to them like like i there's a, an hour-long um uh, 15th anniversary thing that they did with interviews with Matt and Ben and Gus Van Sant, and they talk about the process, uh, which by the way has not aged well. They're like, they're like, yeah, Harvey liked the script, Ooh. and we were gonna get Mel Gibson to direct, and we kept picturing Morgan Freeman for Sean. Was like, okay, I don't feel well. Um, but um, <laughs> let's not get into any of that. Uh, but it was they sort of reverse engineered this script where they're like, we want to write a movie that we can play the main characters in. So we're going to, but we need to have like a female lead and we need to have kind of like a part for a seasoned older actor, like, you know, that like sort of like supporting actor Oscar kind of part. So it sounds very clinical and kind of corporate, but they... They just followed the rules and still made a movie that was had a lot of heart to it. They didn't make this sort of like sterile kind of movie.
1: And they wrote about um, something they knew, which is also, I think, right. a really big part of it. Right. right. It's like they didn't write about space aliens or they didn't write uh-huh. about a, a culture on, that they weren't familiar with. Right. You know, they grew up in, uh, well, at the time, Damon was c- going to Harvard. Mm-hmm. And so it was like they wrote about a, a city they knew, a world they knew. And they found something honest to say about it, which I think is important, even though it did, as you, I think, were about to tell us, take a while.
2: Well, then, yeah, the actual... It did take... Yeah. Right. The actual process was the two of them, because they were actors and had studied improv, they were just improving all these scenes. And, and Matt Damon's like, we probably wrote 2,500 pages of dialogue. Like, there's so much dialogue that they wrote and then just sort of cut it down. And I think that's why the movie feels as natural as it does. Yeah, it it's, really is natural. It is because they found those lines that really sound real but also were funny and engaging and work. But they would just they would just improv and just go back and forth. You know, and he says everyone always asks us who wrote that line or who wrote... and they're like, we literally have no idea mm-hmm. who wrote any single line in the movie. There is of course the the family guy joke where it's Matt Damon sitting at a typewriter and Ben Affleck on a couch, you know, and Matt Damon's like all done goodwill hunting by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's like on the couch, like smoking a bowl. And he's like, Hey, uh, when you, when you, when you put my name on there too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I found, cause I did some reading up about it too. Although, you know, again, I remember watching the Oscars when they won for best original screenplay. They're still the youngest. I mean, like Ben Affleck was 25 years old which is horrifying to God, think about never. now. <laughs> it's like, oh, no.
0: Just an air of depression kind of on yeah. <laughs> The room all of a sudden. I
1: think the light all just left the room. Yeah. Uh, it is like, I remember it was, it felt like this huge upset, this huge revelation of like, young people have something to say. Um, but they wrote it seven years before they made it. Mm-hmm. Like, they started writing it seven years before they made it. I found reading about the process, like, both very hopeful and very sobering where they like got into a bidding war they went with castle rock they went and developed with castle rock for like a year then they couldn't work it out with their creative differences Mm. castle rock put it into turnaround they had to go back and take a bunch of meetings and eat a bunch of crow with people that they had turned down already who then (laughs) took meetings just to tell them they were going to pass on it i mean like no goodbye And then they like went to, it's like this person and this person and this person and this person. And it was closed doors all over the place and development and development. It's exhausting. But then when you watch it, you're like, obviously worth it. And
2: and their original choice was Gus Van Sant. So like the fact that everything they went through was them actually finally getting what they wanted in the first place.
1: And they were, and they started it and they they stuck Mm -hmm. their guns about that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Which for, you know, they've done some roles kind of. Uh, kind yeah. of. Yeah. yeah, they were on they
2: were on the map, but yeah, oh, you no, you're talking about since since.
1: No, 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 no. Before that, before so, that, yeah, like, they were on the map. They but not much. They didn't have zero credits, mm-hmm. but they didn't really have the credits to to get this movie made. And it right. really was Robin coming on board that made that happen.
2: Right. I remember Kevin Smith talking about producing it, and he was like, he read the script and loved it, and was sending it to people, and they're like, wait, who are these guys? And it's like did you ever see Courage Under Fire like that one guy in like school? T- you know, it's like it's like that one actor mm-hmm. who you maybe saw Days with.
1: and Confused.
2: Sure, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like wait, wait, it's the it's the it's the bully from Days to Confuse yeah. and the and the heroin addict from Courage Under Fire. Like they made a movie together. Like what, why am I reading this? What's going on? <laughs> it's so weird to think about a
3: time when exactly <laughs> and Matt Damon were <laughs> like, just like who are these fit people? parts? Yeah. And yeah. yeah, yeah. And it wasn't like that long ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess it was. Well, I mean, 20, 20, 20, years, 20 years ago. The on that.
1: yeah yay
3: yay <laughs> the room just got darker but, again
2: yeah. <laughs> also remember i'm like five darker. years older than you guys so you're just <laughs> making me feel even worse. we're all in our 30s here right yes, yes. okay yeah. cool.
3: Um, <laughs> cool but, but I,
1: re- I remember when all <laughs> I, I mean i remember i would have been what 11 when this movie came out and i certainly of course hadn't seen it and wouldn't see it for years but i remember when they won their best original screenplay Oscar i felt like oh i can i can do this like you know somebody young can step forward and say like we have yeah we have a voice and like we can do this. Um,
2: that is not the kind of things I was thinking when I was eleven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that year my main not memory... involved
1: in student government. Were you? <laughs> <No>.
3: <laughs> my main movie memory from that year was feeling really uncomfortable in the theater at Titanic, Titanic? with my parents when <laughs> oh. there was the creepy car sex scene where her hand slaps the window, and I was like, "What?" Didn't just we ha- already talk about this? This is like oh, our fourth this, podcast. This, and then this, we're already a podcast about this to us. <laughs> Sorry, it's like a story I tell a lot, but I just I it's for, forever in my mind. It's the weirdest sex scene I've ever seen. Yeah, I think it's it is. not a good one. We it's like, agree. For, for it's being, pretty weird. for being like the pivotal sex scene in like the greatest love story of all time or whatever. James Cameron, it's like it's just a really <laughs> weird scene. I yeah. you <laughs> keep saying that. We <laughs> gotta
0: seriously. have it on record. Yeah, it's, it's just, weird.
2: It's not. It's a great cute. movie, but like, why? Yeah, what's going on? I have, I have a, a quick little good hunting <laughs> antidote. That um, antidote? No, that's that's if you have poison. I was poison. gonna correct Ant- Antidote. You go. Um, which is <laughs> two of the jokes in the movie, uh, or, or two of the like funny moments in the movie were different in the script than they were. Like Skylar's original joke that she tells to the guys is a guy gets three wishes and he wishes for a bottomless pint of Guinness. And he's so excited about it that when the genie, like, impatiently is like, what are your other two wishes? He's like, I guess I'll just have two more of these. (laughs) Yeah. Which is a really good joke, but I think it makes sense that they made it a little raunchier because, like, that makes her fit in. Right. But the the one that I love, it's sort of a known fact that when... Uh, my wife used to fart in her sleep that whole thing Mm -hmm. it's a known fact that the cameraman is laughing you can kind of see like the the Mm -hmm. shaky cam Uh coming up and down but he's not laughing at what you're watching he's laughing at something that got cut it originally was just like my wife used to turn off the alarm clocks in her sleep and it bugged me or like whatever so it was like very tame and again i think by sort of like making it be a little bit more personal and and kind of like that it makes them connect a little bit more but they were improv on it, like it was Robin Williams' idea to of say course, that, and they're going course. back and forth. And so there's this line that Robin Williams says, "Oh, it got so bad you'd have to light a match." And then Matt Damon says, "Is that how she died?" Oh, no. <laughs> oh. And that's actually what they're all laughing at. Oh, no. and, and like someone was telling a story, like like the crew is like jumping into the hallway, like trying not to destroy the scene, just like crack.
4: <laughs> oh no. I
2: just distorted the mic in my reaction. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The right. same. yeah, it's like it was probably appropriate to take it out of the movie, but like I love that it like made that it's that amazing. real moment yeah. between them where they're just dying laughing. I will know. say
1: I don't think I can think of another scene in a movie where it's talked about a woman farting, except it maybe something like Bridesmaids or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, that's like mm. sort of a gross out thing. But I I actually love that about this. It's such a dude movie, mm-hmm. and yet Robin the way that Robin Williams talks about his wife and the way that and Skylar is like again Minnie Driver amazing, yeah. mm-hmm. but like. It is, the women are actual people. Um, Right. Yeah. Even Even back in
0: 1997.
1: Even in 19... (laughs) Women were people 21 (laughs) years ago. No, 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 it's beautiful. Like, even, you know, I like that it is a dude movie. It's about, like, a male journey and male friends. And there's abundant, you know, like, masculinity jostling, that kind of competition going on. But even as, like, side characters or even, you know, Robin Williams' wife, you feel like, uh, you know, the the character's wife you feel like she's not in the movie but you do feel she is she clearly is Mm -hmm. she's so present for sean as a character that she is there and you almost get to like this beautiful her beautiful spirit is almost like a big part of the story um and i think that that's really well observed i'm glad that they went with something that was like true to life and doesn't get talked about a lot Mm -hmm. it's it's great
0: well, it is interesting looking at the screenplay saying how much was changed and, and mm-hmm. I feel like it's, I feel like improvisation can, you know, it's sort of like a double-edged sword where Definitely. sometimes it, you know, maybe feels better on the day when you're shooting, but then you cut it in and it's like "Whoa, well, no we wrote those lines because they served a purpose and mm. someone should have been checking that right um <laughs> but i feel like with this film whenever you know i was looking at the script and then seeing what they changed and sometimes it's even the ordering like i felt like it was done in a way to to make it all achieve that natural feeling that comes across and that it's still maintaining the uh you know the intent of everything and, and the power of it but it just kind of makes it feel Like the more lived in by the actors, and I feel like it's a good example if you're thinking about using improvisation to kind of maybe watch the watch the film and read the screenplay and see what's different and Mm -hmm. like kind of track. Oh, you can see why they changed this. This feels more natural, or this joke between them was actually you know more genuine connection because it was a real laughter. Right, but it's still the joke is just there to make them connect, and then the rest of it is still as planned and stuff.
2: It's a weird experience to read a screenplay for a movie that you've seen 10 times. Yeah. Because on one hand, it's like you can't separate the two, but then it's like you really notice the things that are different, even if they're minor things. You're like, oh, wow, that would have been really different if they had done that that way or, you know, little things like that.
1: I mean, we were, you know, we talked about The Devil Wears Prada last time and we were lauding Meryl Streep and her intuition about what is essential to the character and stuff. It goes back to casting. I mean, that's, we as writers, often don't get a lot of say in casting um but it is like if you are uh like a a filmmaker who's gonna make a short or something that you're gonna produce yourself which I feel like we've all done um you do have a say in casting and sticking to your guns about who you feel the character is and who you like casting someone who you feel really understands the character and also has the experience to work their way through the character's psychology um because Casting Robin Williams, they talked about all kinds of other people. I mean, Robin was a huge star at the time, and getting him was like the thing that, like I said, ended up getting the movie made. But also, he had a deep understanding of this character, obviously, and was able to work his way through the psychology. It's a combination of intuition and also experience, Um, and not settling for somebody that is just either super famous or either seems like they kind of get the role or they are the role um right like i remember i remember when um precious came out um based
2: on the novel push by sapphire yes thank you (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) i remember when that movie came out they were talking about their casting process and they had had like seen a bunch of young women who had gone through trauma that was so similar to what she was going through in the movie and they ended up not casting any of them Mm -hmm. because they were like actually what we need is an actress actress who has a ton of experience Mm. and like not somebody who actually lived in this also we don't want to put any of them through it again but somebody who has both the instincts for the role and then also enough process enough like enough years of knowing what it is to put themselves in that place and i feel like i mean we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how this is the movie that people remember Robin Williams for sure. like, he made a ton of other amazing movies and yet at his passing in 2014 people went to that bench in Boston
4: mm-hmm.
1: you know there's something about Sean in this movie that we <laughs> we wish Robin might have been <laughs> um might have been able to work his way through some stuff I don't know
0: yeah well I, I think that's good advice also what you were saying about you know mm-hmm. as a writer trying to Stick to your guns and find someone that can get into the psychology of the character because I think that also necessitates that you, the writer, understand the psychology of the character and, you know, aren't just wed to the words you wrote because those were the words that you wrote, but like you really understand deeply where they're coming from and what they're trying to achieve. And I think that's for me anything for me anyway, the thing that I try to keep in mind is rather than being precious about the words that are on the page, based
2: on the novel, push and
3: <laughs> <laughs> Every time we use the word precious from now on, Oh God, we created it's either a that monster. or my goblin voice. You got to choose.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. You were um, saying serious things. Michael, uh, Michael go. Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: rather than being, um, precious. Protect, Just say protective precious. of the words on the page. Um, Protective of the the ideas and the objectives and the goals of mm. it and holding that kind of being a way to hold yourself accountable of like, you know, you're going to have to potentially explain this to the audience. Like we've yes. Alex and I just uh, saw off Beale Street could talk and we mm. saw a and a with Barry Jenkins. And I think that was one of the things he said during his uh, q and A. I I think maybe I'm making this up.
3: Well, I mean, I, I was also telling you about an event I went to. Um where I saw a uh, Josh singer who wrote the post and that's what yeah. first and man. you're mixing he wrote up first man mixing yeah. up film Good independent things. events. Right. Um, anyway, I, yeah. And first man, and he was talking about how, um, with the post Meryl Streep gave tons of notes and she, you know, and she has, she has, you know, final say in some ways. Sure. So basically, but he was like, I kind of resisted some of the notes and I wanted to fight them. And then I realized she was right about everything. Yeah. So you know, having Meryl Streep in your movie sure. um, can can totally change it for the better. And she like, knows character and story so well. Um. And, but what were you trying well, to say? And one of the yeah. things that now I
0: remember you you telling me. Okay. <laughs> um, was that that it? Um, knowing that you're going to have to explain to the actors, the yes. motivation behind the thing. absolutely. And I think using that to hold yourself to accountable to like, really know with every line, with every moment between lines, like you need to understand the, the purpose, the function of mm-hmm. everything and be able to articulate that to people.
3: Yeah. When Meryl asks you, why am I saying this? You better have an answer. Yeah, right? Seriously. Yeah.
1: I mean, and I feel like I've, seen both sides of it or i've been a part of both sides of it where i've i've sometimes written like a script and then i'm not in any way involved in the production right i'm not there i'm not directing it all of that stuff and then sometimes i see the final movie and i'm like oh no no one understood what that line meant like Mm -hmm. the actor didn't understand what that line meant the director didn't understand what that line meant like and you can see that really clearly as opposed to the flip side where sometimes the actor understand what the understands what the line means better than you do where Mm -hmm. you're like no you're not saying the words right No. That's not what I'm saying, though, like um, or it's the inflection, or they need to say only half the line or only one word of the line, mm-hmm. right, to convey what's actually going on, so yeah, yeah I was
2: in a play once that I, I felt. Very, very close to, and I'd seen it an incredible production of it done, and then when I ended up being in it, I felt like I kind of had to explain the play to the director, Ooh. not in a way where I was like, oh i'm more into it's just in a way where like no, this is a very close to my heart thing, mm-hmm. and I don't think you're getting there's like subtle thing you know and it was like a, re- a really interesting experience, and again, not trying to like being like i knew that they didn't yeah (laughs) um but it was but it was like a it was a really cool experience to sort of go like oh i i actually have something to bring to this you know as just an actor not a writer or a director like i as an actor i have something to bring to this the table
3: i i love that as a director you know that's that's what's exciting to me about getting out of the like solo process of writing and getting into a production mindset where you're working with a crew and a cast and people are bringing their perspective to it that's where I have the most fun because it's like, oh my God, you saw something here. I didn't even know was there. Maybe subconsciously I put it in, but that's like super exciting. I couldn't have done that on my own. and Mm -hmm. I I love that collaborative process.
1: It makes me wonder or like wish that Matt and Ben had written a few more movies together you know I don't know it is it's a a really brilliantly written screenplay but maybe the whole magic of it was that they were also playing the characters I remember reading that like Ben Affleck did that scene where he's like you can't be here in 20 years that's an insult to us that like big pivotal mm-hmm. scene with Chucky I remember like reading he, you know, he did it in like one take basically. Like he kind of nailed the performance in one take and they I think they did two more for safety. Yeah. But then like everything in the movie is from the first take. Hmm. And Ben was saying like, "Well, I wrote this 7 years ago. <laughs> like I've lived in it, I've rehearsed it, I've lived in it, rehearsed it, like walked it to death. I know what every single minute, second of it means." And so then when he did it, he was like, oh no, like it's all, it's over. It's over. Yeah. the
2: last time. R- right. Yeah. And especially yeah. with Gus Van Sant being such a like low energy director, he's just yeah. like, all right, you, you, you want to do it again? Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Like, so they did it twice more and he's like, okay, I think we got it. Ben Affleck's like, holy crap. Like this thing we've been do- working on for seven years. is just, it happened. It's yeah. done. You know? Yeah. That is a weird thing about production where it's like, especially a project you've been gestating for
3: a long time mm-hmm, and then production mm-hmm. is so rushed and so quick and then it's like, oh, that's it. All right. Yeah.
1: Well, it's it's interesting. I think a lot of us here maybe come from an acting background. I would say raise your hands, but no one can see that. I mean, this is radio.
0: I think it's only that side of the table. With the again, is not a visual thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Trisha and Brian. We'll, we'll let you yeah. figure out which one. I are. mean, I was in like <laughs>
3: drama in high school, but that's about yeah, it. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, so we, but we've all acted at some point or another. Like, even if it was like a long time ago, um, and I can't imagine. I can't imagine like wanting to act in any of my roles now. I- I'd love to hear the perspective of somebody that's still an active writer actor, mm. not a writer director, not a right. writer producer, right. a writer actor. If you're a writer actor, contact us. <laughs>
2: contact at one She <laughs>
3: <Trisha. laughs> She's the one Find who wants Trisha's to Trisha's Twitter.
1: I'd love to talk to you. <laughs>
0: Tweet at Trisha.
1: Yeah. yeah, or I'd love to see one of your films. It's really what it is
0: yeah okay, well, I think this is a good time to sort of go around and talk about what are the creative lessons uh that we are taking from goodwill hunting. I think we've touched on a lot of things um, but just to sort of you know put that concisely out and and so I think starting for me, I think it's the process of looking at this and the psychology of character and sort of like we were talking earlier about the hero's journey and this mm-hmm. the you know this universal human experience I think it Helped me connect with things like Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey and all, all these screenwriting, storytelling, you know, mythos, like lots of big, pretty words about like the meeting with the goddess and blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. I think going through this film and looking at the psychology of character made it made me internalize the value of you know thinking about story in those terms that mm. you're trying to create a catharsis. For the audience and you know it is supposed to be entertaining and fun but it's also you know ideally it's a story about how to live and how to get better and I think having that um, in your mind is a big responsibility as a writer but I think it should be and I think that should be part of the fun challenge, is can you put something out in the world that makes the people that watch it better in some way and it doesn't have to be you know a breakthrough yeah. of childhood abuse but you know. Put something that is generous and makes the world better, and probably is. I think it should probably come from a place of truth for you, because if it's not truthful and honest to your experience, then
3: probably no one will care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I agree.
1: Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Alex, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think for me, it was you know editing this video uh, and the script that Brian wrote really uh, showed me how it's a great example of a movie where every character is playing that role of you know kind of holding a mirror up to the protagonist and challenging them and pushing them towards their eventual catharsis and that's something I I just want to remember as a screenwriter myself is just every character in a movie isn't just there arbitrarily it's there they're there to serve a role for the protagonist to push them along their journey you know and and represent different value spheres that they're struggling with um and the character and, web. And the character web, as John Truby says, or <laughs> one of those guys. Um, probably multiple people will say that. Um anyway, but yeah, I think it was a, a really clear, nice example of a movie where all the characters they don't feel you know, like they're being forced to be,
4: mm.
3: you know, like there's some you know, maybe more blockbustery movies where it's like this person represents this thing and it's kind of annoying, but all these characters feel so three dimensional and yet mm. they are totally serving that purpose of they're pushing Will along his journey. They're representing different directions he could go in his life. Um, So yeah, it was just another good example of that and something I want to incorporate into my own writing.
1: For me, I was most encouraged. I think it's a brilliant screenplay. And I, I was most encouraged by reading about the journey they took to get to the shooting script as someone who's like navigating Hollywood and, and all that kind of stuff. Like I said, it was both encouraging and also like really humbling because thinking about like, Oh, it took them, 7 7 years really like that's and there were so many moments along that way where they were like this is never going to get made if it does we're never going to be in it it's going to be unrecognizable like and they got into it for there was a lot of money on the line you know at different points of development where they were like oh no this is <laughs> this is almost too big now like they got themselves in a little bit over their heads and and yet they they stuck to it. They didn't get discouraged. They didn't quit or walk away or try to do something else or, or whatever. They didn't compromise it. Um, Yeah, they uh, that's really encouraging because it, it can be when you have producers shouting notes at you from five different angles and they all sound wrong. You're just like, oh, how can I how could anything emerge out of this? That is what I see or that is the story I'm trying to tell. And so Goodwill Hunting is sort of like this very hopeful, I think. Representation of of what might be possible or was twenty years ago.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, Brian. Um, yeah, I think for it's for me it's kind of obvious. It is that sort of as we talked about at the top of the of the episode, just getting into a character's head and really finding out what makes them tick, and also being consistent with it. Where you always have those moments where you go, I don't believe that character would do that and it's weird because it's a double-edged sword because it's like, well, the character does whatever the writer decides. You know, if, if George Mm -hmm. Lucas decided when Darth Vader was 19, he really hated sand. Then like, (laughs) then that's episode two (laughs) reference. Then that's like, you know, that's what the person who created this character decided. And it's, but, but at the same time, it's hard as an audience member not to go, but I don't like this. I don't, you know, um, that's his wound. (laughs) (laughs) The sand on tattooing. Right. Exactly. Um, (laughs) But uh, so there's, you know, there's a moment, I I read the script, watched the movie again, and then watched the movie with commentary. After reading the script, there's a moment in the movie where it's one of the first times that Will and Lambeau are working together and they sit down after doing this thing Mm. and Lambeau kind of like musses his hair in this very like fatherly kind of way. And after reading the script and watching the movie right after, I was like, that seems really soon. And then I watched it with commentary and they were like, we all thought that was too soon, but the studio wanted to show that, like, they were getting along and everything like that. And I was like, how interesting. I'm always Thanks a little so
1: surprised much. that Will doesn't punch him. Yeah, like,
2: exactly. Yeah. Right. Will very... seems w- way too okay with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's such an interesting thing. Like, we always have those moments where it's like, look, a character is whoever a writer says that character is. But we can't help by, as an audience by going – from going, here's what we know about the character – And we feel sort of betrayed when the character does something that we don't think they would do. And there's no, there's no basis for it. It's one thing if you're like, oh, he did that because we saw two episodes ago, if it's a TV show that whatever it just, no, that character that doesn't sound right for the character. And I think that's kind of getting into the psychology of a character is really valuable because you, you learn sort of what those boundaries are. And if you break those boundaries fine, but you have to earn the right to break them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Awesome.
0: All right, cool. Well, why don't we just uh end with quickly saying what we are watching, what people should be checking out. Uh Trisha, do you want to go first?
1: Why, certainly. I should be no surprise to anybody that I sat down and watched the ballad of Buster Scruggs, mm. which is on your Netflix. Check it out. Alex is grinning like he loves it. Do you love it, Alex?
3: I haven't seen it yet. Oh, but I dude. but it, they're just nodding yeah, yeah, that yeah, you of yeah. course have watched it already. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> no, it's I,
0: that's the coen brothers it's, right they make things oh my god you, hey. might have,
1: <laughs> you might have heard of them they've made a few films okay. uh no it's i really really like it um obviously it's vignettes so it's not one continual story um and i this is another conversation for another time as a coen brothers fan if you are a coen brothers fan it will check all of your boxes like it does all of the things that they do so well it's like super violent in places it's also hilarious you know um there's these amazing performances from actors that you've seen in a bunch of coen brothers movies and also new actors that you've never seen steven root is in it in a really hilarious have you seen it
2: yeah i've not oh dude. But he, he's in a few other movies yeah he yeah. is
1: and you know tim blake nelson is obviously mm-hmm. amazing all the time and like
3: i forget good things about zoe kazan
1: Zoe Kazan is so oh, yeah, oh, she's,
3: she's in awesome. It? In That's it. cool.
1: Yeah, and it's existential grappling, it's like nihilism, it's like God and America and the West and like so, and singing and singing and you know, it's it's really it's a fun All the boxes. It's every it's every damn box. Uh, I just if you I recommend you check it out. And and there are some of those some of them oh, And I also have to say this. So the kid who plays Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies is in a huge role in it. And he's amazing. Really? Yes. His name is... Oh, I should have looked it up. His name is Harry. I think... No. How could it be Harry? (laughs) It could be. (laughs) Just just (laughs) Dudders. He... I didn't recognize him. Like, I watched that. He's in a sequence. He's in a short with, like, an episode with Liam Neeson. And... It's just the two of them, really. And it's so stark and moving. It's one of the dramatic ones where it's, like, not funny. It's just upsetting. And he's so good in it that I could not place him. And huh. then I finally looked him up and I was like, oh, no. oh, what? <laughs> it's the kid from Harry Potter. He's it's tremendous um so definitely just go check it out it's totally worth the ride and even if it's not it's only like what in 80 90 minutes or something so uh
3: i just started watching homecoming on amazon prime last night with julia roberts and it's um directed by sam esmail the creator of mr robot uh and mr robot i i have enjoyed a lot it's it's a pretty uneven show in my opinion Uh, season two i almost stopped watching Season three kind of got me back again, Um, but you can't deny that he is a director with a vision, and he definitely has his style and his voice, and I feel like it's all on full display in Homecoming. And, like, the first episode has this amazing long take that kind of flies over different rooms and goes through different, like, stairways, and it's just, like, he's such in command of his directing style it's just really inspiring so yeah it's a really fun weird psychological thriller and done with a lot of pizzazz and julia roberts and it's great so check it out nice michael uh i saw
0: if beale street could talk as mm-hmm. i mentioned briefly earlier uh and i really really loved it um i almost don't even know what's it's, it's a very it's a movie made with so much love and it's I actually liked it more than Moonlight. It's Bray Jenkins, the same director as Moonlight, mm-hmm. obviously. And I think it there's just it it felt like a director really coming into his own mm-hmm. where like after Moonlight, you know, sometimes when a new director does an amazing thing, it's like, was this an accident? Mm-hmm. Like is this is yeah, a yeah, one-off, yeah. or is it yeah. and so it was very affirming to see another film that had as much um as, as It felt as fresh as moonlight and in ways that resonated even more with me um, and the structure is really interesting there's a lot of moments and sequences that you know are very contained but you know dramatic because it 's almost like a mini play that happens, and then there are mm. other sequences that are very uh you know filmically you know experimental and stuff so uh, I highly recommend that I, that's a contender for favorite movie of the year up there with Aroma for awesome. Me. I'm awesome excited
2: i have uh, no exciting filmic uh things to share i think i only watched one movie since the last time we, we podcasted, and it, it podcasted and it's uh made the uh john favreau it's like the spiritual sequel to swingers whoa yeah which i i love that movie I've, I've i love Swingers. Like, like the fourth or fifth time i've seen it but um it, we were talking about how uh, peter billingsley uh, Who's Ralphie from A Christmas Story? Mm-hmm. Is also one of the elves in Elf, yeah. and I was like, oh yeah, he he does a lot all Jeff John Favreau's movies. And I was talking to my girlfriend. I was like, we should watch Made tonight, and she's like, what is that? And I was like, do you like Swingers? She's like, yeah. And I was like, then we should watch Made. And it's just it's like not a great movie, but it's like if you <laughs> but if you like Swingers, it's just it's the same. It's Vince Vaughn being terrible, but like it's ve- again, it's very clear that he's terrible. Like everyone yeah. hates him. You've got Peter Falk as a mob boss. You have Sam Rockwell as like an effeminate bellboy. Dustin Diamond does How a cameo. I've never seen this because I love Dustin Dustin Diamond. Oh, uh, man. P-, P. Diddy as a gangster who's like um who knows the difference between an aperitif and a DJ stief and he's arguing about it. I love it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but it's just it's just a fun, silly ride. Right? It's almost like Trisha, I know you love like the the old like uh the, chandler and yeah, Leonard yeah, novels, yeah. not it sort of has that like very wandering like there's not really uh-huh. a plot but you're just watching a bunch of like really entertaining scenes that are very like loosely glued together but that's kind of the point of it you know okay
1: i know you just thought but guys if you want to come watch made at my house tonight <laughs> that's what i'm watching nice
0: done awesome great all right cool well uh yeah thank you everyone for listening i hope you enjoyed this discussion of goodwill hunting and psychology and whatever else we talked about um, <laughs> lots, they, of things. lots of things uh thank you for listening and we will see you next time we gotta go see about a girl <laughs> farewell <laughs> it's, nice. it's not your fault <laughs> hey guys michael here first of all a big thank you from myself and the team to everyone who subscribed and listened and left all the amazing reviews on itunes make sure to subscribe to beyond the screenplay wherever you get your podcasts Hit us up on Twitter to share any feedback you have. We'd love to hear from you. Some of you already have, and it's been really fun hearing your thoughts. So if you want to reach out, all of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. And finally, if you want to help us continue to grow both the channel and the podcast, head to the Patreon for Lessons from the Screenplay to become a patron. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.